I'm going to waste no time. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. No preacher has ever lived, dare I say no preacher will ever live, to accurately communicate the depths of horror that take place in this garden in our text this morning that I just read to you. Um, I asked prayer from the worship team this morning uh, for my preaching. Um, I don't know that I've ever felt so inadequate to stand among you and strive to be faithful um, to do my part to shift your gaze away from me, away from yourselves, um, your current situation, whatever that is, um, your afternoon plans, shift your gaze to the Lord Jesus. And the atmosphere of this message this morning is is less practical and it's more existential and and really that's just a fancy way of me saying I I don't have a ton of now go do this (laughs) as a result of this message instead it's it's more like an opportunity to see afresh or maybe for the very first time the gravity that you cannot escape um the very impact of what is taking place here affects every nook and cranny of your life. It's not like, here's three things you can do now. It's like, what can I do that would not be affected by these truths? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know suffering, don't you? You don't know it like Jesus. (laughs) 
on two occasions I've played, I've role-played Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane in something we've been fortunate to be a part of, and that is the drive through Christmas with Jeremiah, Jeremiah 38 Ministries. And um, after sitting alone for numerous hours this week with the garden, I don't think I'll ever be able to look at this the same. And I hope you can either. Um, in summary this morning, we can rest in God's promise to never leave us or forsake us because Jesus drank the cup of condemnation that was ours to drink. My first point is this. Immense suffering exposes our critical need for companionship. Why do I say this? And this really is an aside from the thrust of the entire passage, but I can't help but note it. COVID is being used in the hands of God to expose some things that we once took for granted and frankly underestimated tremendously. You'll never know how underestimated relationships and companionship, human relationships. You don't have to know God to know that you are better off with people than you are without them. Introverts in the room push back. But even you know that you are better off with people than you are without them. And by that, those of us who are God's children, we have had our eyes open to the secret of the universe. And part of that package comes a realization that we know what is to be valued most in this life. And it's really quite simple. I kind of teased it last week. Two things, God and people. It's really quite simple. You people, those people, all people. And Jesus here is under an immense amount of pressure. In fact, Gethsemane means oil press or wine press. There, it is not ironic that this is the place where he begins to begin his journey towards the cross event. We see his humanity here in a way that we often, I don't think, consider. And because we don't, we forfeit the encouragement that he has purchased for us, in his darkest hour, he invites his three closest companions to watch with him. Did you see that? If Jesus does this, if the Son of God, if the God-man does this, how dare you and I not allow people to see us at our weakest? How dare you and I think You know the temptation to always put your best foot forward, don't you? You did it this morning as you were getting ready to come to this place. You are ashamed and fearful of anyone knowing that you are ashamed and fearful. Don't give in to your thoughts of, I'm needy, 
I'm a bother. I don't want to take you away from what you're doing. And I want to say that to you as one of your pastors. Don't you dare call me and say, I don't mean to bother you. What are you paying me to do? I don't want to disrupt you while you work. You are my work. For at his worst hour, Jesus asked his three closest friends to come with him. Do you not do the same? It sounds really spiritual to say, I don't need anything but Jesus. You've heard me say it a lot. I, in fact, say it a lot. And I tell you that you don't need anything but Jesus. And it really is true, but sometimes it can be misleading and at worst unhelpful because you also need his people. (laughs) You also need his people. The church is immensely important. In fact, the New Testament picture is there is no Christian apart from the church. And to clarify, I don't mean a building. I mean brothers and sisters of Jesus, flesh and blood, regularly. In a particular place. And that can be in your home. And that can be here. We were made for a relationship with the Lord and with one another. Don't resist or run from God's design. Now, so that I'm not misunderstood, there are some that are what I would call providentially hindered, and we have shut-ins, and you know who those people are. And therefore, you must go to them because they cannot come to you. Number two, Jesus is not agonizing the cross to come in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the cup of condemnation that was ours to drink. In verse 38, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Prior to that, he says, It says he began to be sorrowful. And then, just moments later, he says, I am very sorrowful. I am disturbed to the core. I am troubled so much so that I feel like I could die. Did you know that your Savior had those feelings as a man? Have you ever felt such intense pressure, such intense fear, that you felt that you could die. Are you keenly aware of the everyday comings and goings as you live your life, that in Jesus, God and man meet? Are you aware of this? It's not some 50-50 mixture. We see here, as clearly as we can, Truly God and truly man is our Savior. That's the best way I know to put it. And those of you who are well acquainted, well acquainted with deep darkness, anxiety, depression, see Jesus go through this with you for 
you. Verse 39 begs that we must answer a question. Verse 39, he says, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The question is, what is this cup? When you are lost in your Bible and you, don't, you can't make sense of what you're reading or when the preacher is standing before you and you can't make sense of what is said, you need to know that God often repeats himself, that we won't miss things that he needs us to know. We can't know everything. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that now we see in part. The best that we can see is in part. But when you are at a loss and you can't understand, you need to see Scripture interpret Scripture. You need to go to Scripture to make sense of Scripture that you don't understand. Instead, we often want to go to Google or we want to go to some other person The best source is to go to God himself to make more sense of what God has already said in another place. Why do I even say that? Because this is not the first mention of the cup. May I rapid fire what God has said about this cup in other times and occasions for a moment? I don't care if you're giving me permission or not. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. That is to the very last drop. We read in Isaiah 51, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup, of his wrath, who have drank to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Verse 22 says, Thus says the Lord, your God who pleased the cause of this people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. Ezekiel 23, in verse 33, says, A cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear at your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. It's a poison clutching at your chest is the picture, the image here. Revelation 14, if you thought this was just an Old Testament notion. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, verse 9, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You see, the notion of wrath or condemnation is repulsive to our ears, isn't it? It is. But that is what the cup of condemnation that is looming for Christ, that is exactly what it is. God's holiness, his otherness his perfection demands that his response to evil and injustice be that it's punished that nothing will go unnoticed 
or ignored, and yet I know you're already saying it happens every day. No, it does not. People are storing up wrath for the day to come, and that is a horrific thought. You think that people are getting away with something, they're not getting away with a single act that will not come to face judgment. It may not be on your time or mine, but vengeance belongs to the Lord. And before you begin to think about other people as I say that, realize that it is coming for you unless someone else will take it and face it on your behalf. Some may think that that's a modern phenomenon that we don't like to hear about God's wrath. That's, that's not the truth. Because every heresy, and, and hypocrisy, plays out on repeat. We're really reinventing the wheel as far as sin goes because we're really not that creative. Um, we keep coming back to the same place ourselves and a God of our own devices, our own making. In fact, all the way back, I'm, I'm, I say that facetiously, back to 1959, <laughs> Richard Niebuhr says in a book called The Kingdom of God in America, a God, without, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That's what's at stake. See the great anxiety of our Lord at the prospect of consuming the cup that should be ours. And you might even be tempted to ask, if you're paying any attention at all, God tells us again and again and again, do not be anxious, do not be afraid. Well, if God tells us, do not be anxious, do not be afraid, why is it here that he can get away with it? That is a tragic misunderstanding. It is completely, categorically different than every single occasion where God has ever told you, do not be anxious. For God has never willed nor has he asked you to see clearly every single sin that you have ever committed or will commit. Someone once said that if he did, it would kill us. Our hearts would be overwhelmed to the point that they burst. Our brain would blow if we could see how we have betrayed, how we have committed treason against our God who is so good and so kind. Yet that's the commission from the Father to see with perfect clarity the sins of those he came to save and yet still go through with it. Still go through with it. In fact, worse than that, I believe here in this garden, he not only sees the sin, but he sees that he will become that sin and swallow it whole to the very last Drop. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This cup must be filled 
with the concentrate of the infinite, endless horrors of hell, the abandonment of the Father, the relational intimacy disrupted, better yet denied. The one with whom a loud voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to just moments later, hours later upon a cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Martin Luther says he is the Son of God, the everlasting righteousness. And although he assumed our flesh and blood, his flesh and blood is altogether sinless. Yet since he took upon himself foreign sin, namely that of all the world, in order to atone for it, the sin of others so affected him, so filled him with such grief and anguish, and so terrified him that he began to tremble and quake, confessing, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. And Luke's account describes the physician, it's so fitting, that he sweats like drops of blood. Some say the language is actually that it was blood, not like blood. In fact, many say with confidence that his capillaries in his face burst under the stress. And that is a medical phenomenon that can take place even today under tremendous trauma. I cannot imagine the temptation that is facing my Lord, and yet he still goes through with it. Charles Spurgeon says something to the effect that the enemy undoubtedly whispered, you have no friend left in heaven or on earth. Point number three, at the sight of our sin and weakness, the love of Christ is not diminished. Let me say that again. You did not hear it. At the sight of our sin and weakness, the love of Christ is not diminished. And friends, what you need to hear today is that is still true in this very hour. It is not merely on this page for our observation, our speculation, our study, our pondering. Oh, what a thing. Verse 40 says that after the first prayer, Jesus returns to his three closest companions to find them sleeping. Have your friends ever let you down? I believe the enemy is taunting him at this point. They're not worth dying for. They're not worth dying for. Can't you see they are nothing but words? Did you not hear earlier, Peter says, I will never deny you, Lord. In fact, I would go to die for you. All words, but no follow through. You can't save this kind of sinner. Who do you think you are? Have you had those feelings? Have you had those thoughts? Maybe that feels familiar to you. I believe God can save some, but not me. I've seen what the person, that person over there, I've seen what they were, and I've seen what they are now. That could never be me. You don't know me. But in verse 41, can you see here what Christ does? He is not moved to berating or belittling. Instead, he he simply asks the question in such a way that he seeks to help them even in their frailty. I know you mean well, Peter. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. 
I know that you really do want to be here for me. But you must know. And friends, beloved, this morning, you and I must know that we are weak. And we need for Jesus to complete what he has come to do, not to bail out at this point. My love for you, Jesus says, will not rest even when put to the greatest test. And you think every day that you've put him to the greatest test and you've broke him down and it, you're, you're at his last nerve. Are you sure you want to go through with this? I imagine Satan is saying, Peter is a picture of us. Will you see it? We have great intentions. We'll do great things for God. And sometimes we actually do. But here we're reminded of our weakness and of Christ's compassion. In our failures to follow through, in our rededications, in our recommitments, in our vows to God, we must see that it has never been and it will never ultimately be about our faithfulness to obey to death, but Christ's faithfulness to, to obey to death. It is here in the garden that we see most clearly what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, understand your human frame and weakness, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what strength would Christ gain in the midst of this great trial? I sincerely believe these are the most traumatic moments a human soul has ever endured. You have never, you will never endure greater trauma than this man. And I know that you in the room have endured immense pain and grief and sadness and anger and horror, things that I do not know. And you know people who have gone through hell itself, it seems, on earth, but not like this man. But what strength is gained? We read in another account that God sends an angel to comfort him. I sincerely believe that these are the most traumatic moments. And what would motivate him to persevere in this moment? For what is Christ to look forward to that was not already his having control of the universe no he's had that in eternity past it has never not been true that he has control of the universe no he had that from the beginning intimacy with the father is he looking forward to the intimacy with the father he has had that forever in eternity past no if I could hold out a mirror right now and you look in it, you are the very thing that got him through, the very thing that helped him persevere. The joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. What is that joy? That joy, beloved, is you. Amen. 
It is me. David Filson says, For you and I are the rescued lamb laid across his shoulders, the lost coin found, the prodigal son embraced. You made his heart rejoice. Then you make his heart rejoice. Now you will make his heart and he yours rejoice for all eternity. Amen. We have an incredible Savior. I sent a message to Kelly this morning and I said, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Put it on the list. It's worth noting as I begin to wrap things up. Don't imagine the Father and the Son are at odds. That may sound like it comes from nowhere, but you and I have surely heard John 3.16. But do you truly know it? Has familiarity bred contempt for John 3.16? We know that verse by heart, for God so loved the world. And you could fill in the blank. I could just turn it over to you and most of you could finish that sentence. But have we realized that right there in John 3.16, staring at us, is a case if there ever was one, against the dangerous idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New are two different beings. We imagine this angry, reckless, short-fused father in the Old Testament, the first half of the book, to be dismissed by this cool and compassionate and calm Jesus of the later half of our Bibles. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. To be fair, you can still ask hard questions because there are lots of those. But we cannot think of the Son as looking nothing like the Father. Michael, you look just like your dad. I hear that often. And every time it brings a grin to my face because that's one of the greatest compliments that I am honored to receive that people look at me and they think of Mark Wright. I am so thankful that that's the case. But Hebrews 1.3 says that to look at Jesus is to see his dad. In John 14.9, Philip, Jesus says to him, how could you ask me to show you the Father? I can't do anything else. That's all I've been doing is showing you the love of the Father. And to think that the Old Testament is bloody and gruesome and God seems to be angry all the time. Have you actually read it? Or did you read that online? <laughs> what we fail to see is that at the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. What Jesus endures upon the cross surpasses all the war, all the bloodshed, all the plagues, the curses, and judgments of the Old Testament combined. For he is Truly, in the narrow sense of the word, the only innocent man who has ever suffered. For it is true to answer the question, why do happen, bad things happen to good people in this way? That only happened once. And he willingly embraced it. Willingly. As I conclude, let me just apply this. I said I don't have a ton of application. 
I hope that I don't have to. I hope that I don't have to. I hope that the, I pray that the Spirit applies this to your heart and your life. But number one, the cup is empty. The cup is empty. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there is not a single drop left. And there is nothing you can do to change that. Now live with it. Live with it. This means that it is an absolute impossibility that you could be forsaken by the Father. From here on out, the only cup that we can drink is that of his promise. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is the cup of my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are lost, if you are lost here this morning, if you have seen your sin exposed in the midst of God's holiness and justice, agree with him that it will be the end of you unless... You bring it before his son and see what love he has for you, the right to become a child of God through faith by his gift. Salvation is this, Jesus in your place. Gethsemane says, there is no other way, point two of application, there is no other way but Jesus Christ to get to God for atonement of your sin. There is no greater insult to God than to imagine that he would put his son through such agony unnecessarily. And for that matter, that Jesus, before the foundation of the earth was, lay, was, was laid, would agree to die for sin if there was a loophole. Who are we kidding? And three, Gethsemane says from the... From the depths of your soul, pray. With authenticity, with genuine, who you really are, pray. Repeatedly, pray. Who you really are. Not who you're pretending to be. Not who you want to hear you pray. For God knows nothing of if Do you realize that? God knows nothing of if this or that happens. And yet we find here that Jesus prays if this cup could pass. Do you see where heaven and earth kiss, where our God gives us not only permission, but he models it for us to pray That God, I want this to change. I want this to change. But if it is not your will, then you you know what's best. You know what's best. And when the answer is no, because we don't hear an answer. Sometimes you pray and you don't hear an answer. Don't think that God is not listening, sometimes the answer is no. And thank God that it is. Thank God that it is. Thank God that the, pra- the answer to the prayer in the garden from Jesus was no. In his worst hour, he was committed, and yet his humanity can't help but say, God, 
this cup. It's not the cross. It's not the crucifixion. It's not the agony that he will experience. As horrific as that is, it's the cup of condemnation that you and I deserved. And I will remind you, we can rest in God's promise to never leave us nor forsake us because Jesus drank the cup of condemnation that was ours to drink. Will you rise to your feet and pray with me? Father, I have emptied myself. I've got nothing left. And I am just going to trust that the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of your people and also drawing those, whether online or even here, that don't know Christ, have not trusted the Savior just that much closer. In fact, today is a better day than ever for a soul to be set free for the chains to fall in Jesus' name, as it were. God, help us. Help Big Branch Church to be ever mindful that our Savior knows us. This is not a religion that we ascribe to, that we nod to, once a week for you gave your life for ours in turn we give ours for you knowing that we are a mess knowing that we'll have false starts and fumbles and (laughs) just we know that there is forgiveness and we ask I ask right now for these folks that they will not hesitate to confess their sin before you and to realize that your pleasure is uninterrupted on account of Christ. If you're here in this place this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to extend the opportunity for you to trust the Lord Jesus right now. You're in a safe place. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to just lift your hand and say, I don't know Jesus. That's a bold move to make. I don't know Jesus. Would you lift your hand and say, I heard this message this morning and I don't know that. That I'm trusting the Holy Spirit as I just prayed. That one of two things is true. Everyone in here can rest in the the Savior's words. It is finished. Not you take it from here. And if that's not the case, and you will make it known to someone you came with, someone someone that you love and trust, that you can't rest, you need this Jesus. We're going to sing a song to its very end. And I ask you to respond to the Holy Spirit. Whether you want to come and kneel, you want to sit in your seat, you want to remain standing, do you. Go ahead, Marty.